So Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's or Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. And just before we get into this, I'd just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you um, that, that you speak to us through your word, and we pray as we we look at your word this morning that uh, it wouldn't um, just be an academic exercise, but that um, you would move among us and change us and shape our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were sitting as a family uh, having dinner. My wife and two young daughters, Georgia and Poppy, uh, Usually the conversation is, is quite riveting and thoughtful, you know, politics and literature and the like. And, uh, but tonight, was, that night was kind of strange. Uh, there was a bit of a lull in the conversation. Um, and Georgia, she's turning four today, uh, she broke the silence with this little gem. She said, one day we're all going to die and someone else will live in our house. Like, come on, it's Taco Tuesday, like we're just, 
One day we're all going to die and someone else will live in our house, which is true. And perhaps it's an idea that um, you try to not think about, or, or maybe it's an idea that actually sticks with you and you can't get it out of your head. But in either case, what you believe about what happens after you die and new people come and live in your house uh, will determine how you face today and tomorrow. Um, Another great thinker like Georgia uh, was a French philosopher and atheist, uh, Albert Camus. Uh, And he wrote an essay called The Myth of Sisyphus uh, that he... In it, he outlined what he saw as the major essential sort of problem facing modern humanity. And uh, his argument here is, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing a paraphrase from Timothy Keller. So in the myth of Sisyphus, here's what he says. He says, we modern people believe in absolute freedom. Many of us don't believe in God. Many of us don't believe in a God that you can know. Therefore, we believe in no God or no God you can really know because we believe in freedom. If there was a God, and if there was a God we could know, who told us how to live, and who gave us the rules and the regulations, well, then we wouldn't be free, would we? But because we believe in freedom, and because we don't believe in the traditional views of God, we are free. But if we're free, he says, we're like, we're all like Sisyphus. Now, if you're not familiar with Sisyphus, um, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus was, he'd done something wrong and he was punished by the gods. And his punishment was actually quite unique. They took him up to a mountain, the base of a mountain, and his job for the rest of eternity was to take a boulder and push it up the mountain. But every single day, as he would just about get to the top of the mountain, the boulder would roll back down. Again and again and again. For all of eternity. So for Camus, this is modern life. We're we're caught in this meaningless cycle, doomed to repeat meaningless tasks over and over and over again, but we're free. And the way that we respond to this is to fill up our lives with different things that numb us to the crushing reality that uh, this is all that there is, And the things that we do and love and care about are all destined to um, go away. Um, For us, for those of us that would take the name of Christian, that's not our reality, right? Uh, We know that there is a God and a God which we can know uh, who wants to be in relationship with us to the extent that that he came to earth, he, he lived our reality Uh, He purchased us back from sin and from death. And now we wait for his return. We live in in what's what's often called the already but not yet, right? We have the knowledge of of our salvation and and we have a hope of a future spent with him, but we're kind of living in in the in-between, right? And so the the series title, Between Promise and Fulfillment, um, I think is a perfect summation of, of our situation, right? Just like Abram, we've, we've been given promises, but we live in the between as, as sojourners, as, as pilgrims. Now, this is one of the things that I, I love about the Bible is that it's not just a series of, of facts and 
prepositions about how we should think about God, right? It does talk about who God is and what it means to to know him and, and who he is and what he's like, but then it tells us stories, right? Stories about real people who, who lived real life and faced real problems and crises and, and things that they had to figure out. You know, what does it look like to believe God and believe that he's up there and believe that he's called us to, to live a certain way and believe a certain way? What does it mean to follow him in the midst of real problems and real struggles. What do, we, what do we do? How do we respond when the path ahead isn't clear? So here's a key question I want us to explore this morning from this passage. What does it mean to live according to the promises of God? Like, what does it mean to live in the in-between as a sojourner, and how is that going to change the way that I, I, I live my life? And the way that I face the crushing reality that my daughter outlined for us on Taco Tuesday, that one day we are all going to die and new people will live in our house. How, does, how, does, how do I respond to that? Or am I just killing time here waiting for the good stuff, right? Waiting for, for the fulfillment of the promise. So as we try to answer some of these questions, we're going to look at three real-life examples, three stories from our passage. Um, So we're going to look at Lot, we're going to look at Abram, and then uh, someone else. Keep you on the edge of your seat. Uh, But here's the main point that I think we'll see. The people of God must be careful to remain sojourners. So the first sort of case study that we have this morning from this passage is, is Lot. Now, a quick sort of recap of where we are in in this narrative. Last week, in chapter 12, we had this moment where Abram totally bombs. He totally fails, right? He fails the test, makes all sorts of bad decisions. He he wanders off to Egypt, uh, away from the land where God had called him. He's he's deceitful, uh, cowardly even. He he fails to trust in the promises of God. But then we saw this, this beautiful moment at the start of chapter 13, uh, where Abram walks back, right? He returns to the land that God had called him to and the altar that he built at first, and it's this restoration at the start of chapter 13. And then we read in verse 2 that the fortunes of his family had actually changed, right? Verse 2 says, Abram uh, was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So he's gone from famine to, to prosperity, Verse 5 tells us that Lot, Abram's nephew, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, to the point where we read in verse 6 and 7 that it's actually becoming a problem, right? They have too much wealth, too much prosperity, which is uh, super relatable, I know. Uh, But here's the thing. When nomadic people like Abram and Lot, when they get wealthy, their bank accounts don't grow, they're their herds grow, right? So you can max out your wealth as a nomadic person if you don't have the land to support that growth. So Abram and Lot are in this situation. There, there isn't enough land to support all of them. And there's, there's fighting, there's conflict between the, the different herdsmen. And so Abram offers Lot this choice of land. And the land that Lot chooses uh, offers him the, a significant opportunity to grow his herds, grow his wealth, and he takes it. 
he takes the better land, and it makes sense. So here's a question. Is there anything wrong with that? Is it wrong to, to want to grow your wealth and to make money? No. But verse 10 tells us, well, hold up. There's, there's actually more going on here with Lot. So if we look at verse 10, the, the commentaries on, on the passage all say that the description we get in verse 10 of the, the Jordan plain is not in the voice of the narrator. Right? Grammatically speaking, when the narrator says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw it, what follows is Lot's perception of the land. Lot's vision of the land. This is what's going on inside of his heart. Right? And so when it says, Lot saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. That is not just a nice little bit of descriptive language. Right? That is intentional. And it should jump out at, at us. What is the garden of the Lord? It's the garden of Eden. Right? When Lot looked out across the plain, he didn't simply see a way to, to make more money for himself or a way to, to flourish. There's something spiritual going on. Something much deeper going on. It's like he was saying, ah, the garden of the Lord is here. Now, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, what, what did we have? We knew who we were. We had identity. We knew we had value. We knew that we had worth. Because in the Garden of the Lord, we were walking with God. But we've lost that. And, and the human condition now, uh, Timothy Keller says, is that we do not know who we are. We do not know what we're worth, and we're trying to get back into the garden to find both of these things. So the language of of garden in in verse 10 is hyperbolic. It's exaggerating the land, but it's spiritually significant. It should leap off the page when we read it because it, it tells us the condition of Lot's heart and by extension, the condition of our own hearts, right? Because I'm a lot like Lot more than I'd care to admit. To borrow the language or or language from C.S. Lewis, we are spiritually homesick. We're alienated from the garden. We're trying to to get back in. So you see, for Lot, this land actually means so much more than just just some space for his goats and sheep to graze, right? Let me illustrate this with a a couple of culturally relevant examples. Um, When I was about 12 years old, uh, my dad showed me a movie uh, called Chariots of Fire, uh, which I think came out in 1981. Uh, and it's about the rise of two Scottish sprinters at the 1924 Olympics. I was not a fan as a uh, 12-year-old. First off, there's a surprising and distinct lack of chariots or fire throughout that movie. Um, so I felt a little, I kept like waiting for this to happen. Uh, secondly, in my childhood view of things, if you've seen the movie, this will make sense, but the moral of the story to me was basically don't run on Sundays, which wasn't all that inspirational. But in any case, I was reminded of this movie uh, this week, and there's a moment in it uh, where Harold Abrams, a runner, eventual gold medal winner, he's, he's kind of like the counter hero, the foil Um, He talks about why he runs and why he's training so hard for the 100-meter race. 
what, what was motivating him. And he described the 100-meter sprint in the moment where the gun goes off. He says, that moment, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. That's interesting. If you look around the world, the basis of all worldviews is, is basically that, right? We're all looking for something to justify us. We're all sprinting down some track hoping to, to prove our selves one way or another. It might be a different track, right? It might be the track of, of success. It might be the track of charity or minimalism or consumerism or religion and, and personal goodness or education or creativity or love. Some, some sort of assurance that we're okay, right? That, that we have worth, that we have identity, that these things that we had in the garden, we've not lost. Another example of this um, another culturally relevant 1980s example. Great theologians of our time, Madonna. Uh, she's the, I was doing some research, she is the best, all time, best female recording artist of all time. Uh, she's sold 305 million albums. She was interviewed a while back uh, in Vanity Fair, uh, and this quote has been used a lot. This is what she says She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. Sounds like Sisyphus. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Isn't that sad? Now listen, what's, what's Madonna really saying? What's Harold Abrams, Abram really saying? When we say that the main thing I need is to sell more albums or to, to win the race or to get married or the main thing I, I need is to be financially well off or buy a, a bigger house or, or you know, have my kids turn out this way, then I'll, then I'll know that my life matters, that, that I've done something. When we say those things, we're not really saying those things. It's actually much deeper than that. We're always after something deeper in those things. We have, have subversive desires. It's never really about the metal or the wealth or the security. What we're really looking for is a way back, a way back into the garden. You see, if, if your greatest desire is that you, you could just rise to the top of your profession and, 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 you know, make it, you're not just after that success, right? You're after the assurance that you're valuable that, and for other people to see you as valuable. And you're looking for identity in, in your work. And then what happens is you get that promotion or that new job and you walk into that office and your heart goes, the garden of the Lord. But it never works, right? You say, oh, this, this thing will satisfy all my needs. But it won't. And it's the same thing with marriage and with kids. It'll never hold up to the weight. It's, it's too much pressure. We do this, right? We just think, oh, if I could just have this, then, then my life would be a garden again. 
Now, all of this is implied in, in the text in verse 10, right? In Lot's vision of the land. It's not just land. It's so much more than land. That's so why you see it in his actions, right? He's not able to defer to, to, to Abram. He's, he's actually taking advantage of old Uncle Abe, right? It's, it's why instead of deferring to his elder, Lot takes the best for himself. It's why there's conflict between the herdsmen. And it's a little bit ridiculous, this language, because Lot wants the garden of the Lord, but without the Lord. You look at the end of verse 10. Lot thinks that the Jordan Valley is like the land of Egypt, right? The place where they just come from, where they'd been disobedient in the direction of Zoar. The little note here from the narrator, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. A little bit of foreshadowing there. Not subtle. Right? It's a bit on the nose. But we get the point. Lot is, is wandering away from the call of God. And look at, look at verse 11. So his decision here. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked. So a little bit more foreshadowing here. Lee preached on the first part of chapter 12. He, he said that the call of God on Abram, and by extension his family, is to, to, to tents and to altars, right? To sojourning and to worship. And you see here where Lot's going. He's settled among the cities. When he moves to just outside of Sodom, he's, he's barely in the land of Canaan that God had called him to. And then when he does move into Sodom, as we'll see in Chapter 14 and 15, he's actually technically outside of Canaan, outside of where God has called, called him to. One writer put it this way. He says, Dazzled by the ostensible prosperity of Sodom, Lot pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Lot was the kind of man, listen to this, Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice, but not heaven over earth. He would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice but not heaven over earth. Material prosperity was the bottom line. So you see what happens here? The, the drift, the, the series of, of compromises, it all finds its, its root in that desire to claim for ourselves what can only be found in relationship with God. You see, Lot had placed his hope in, in financial success and wealth, and, and you can see it in the way that his, his eyes just light up when he sees the land. It's not just land. He's turned it into the thing that's finally going to complete him. And we all do that. And so he settles rather than sojourns, and he wanders away from the call of God. And if we were to trace out the rest of his life, which you can see it throughout Genesis, you know how the story ends. So that's our first little case study. The second example is Abram. Now, Abram, in this chapter, you've got something altogether different, right? It's really a picture, positive picture of how to remain a sojourner and resist the temptation to settle. Now, to the modern reader, when we read this division of land, the way that Abram acts seems fairly reasonable, right? It's what you tell kids to do with, like, a piece of pie or something. One person cut it in half and the other take it, right? It seems reasonable. There's quarreling, there's fighting between Lot's people and Abram. Um, so it makes sense to us. But it's not common sense to them. They lived in an absolutely patriarchal society. 
Abram is the, the senior, he's the head of the clan. He had every right to all of this land. All of it. So for Abram to sit at the table with Lot and give Lot the choice is actually fairly astounding. We shouldn't miss it. You see, Abram has, has three relationships here, and he knows that he can't keep all of them. What are those three relationships? Well, first, he's got his relationship to God. Second, he's got this relationship to Lot, which is in jeopardy because of Lot's ambition. And finally, he's got his relationship to his money, right? He can't keep all three. And so he's got three options. First, he could potentially say to Lot, let's you and me go off somewhere else. Let's find a different area, maybe back to Egypt or something like that, an area that's big enough for the both of us. This would allow him to keep the relationship with Lot and keep his wealth, but at the cost of disobeying the call to obey God. So he could keep two and three and lose one. Secondly, he could say to Lot, look, I'm the patriarch. I'm going to keep all the good land for myself and you can uh, go away. Deal with it, Lot. Um, You know, technically he would still be obeying God and, and he could continue to grow his wealth, grow his herds. But Lot, of course, would... Uh, you know, you know what he's like. He's going to be bitter. He's not going to be happy about that. So he could keep one and three and lose the relationship with Lot. Or he could do what he does, which is to say to Lot, hey, take what you want. Whatever you want, you can have. Take whatever looks good to you and I'll take the rest. Whatever's left over. You want east? I'll take west. You want west? I'll take east. Which is really what he's doing is he's obeying the command, which hadn't even been given yet, he's obeying the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? God first, Lot second, money third. Right? Unlike chapter 12, his priorities are, are ordered. And he, he does this. He makes this decision knowing what Lot was going to say, right? Like he could see Lot's ambition and, and that look in his eyes. So he keeps his relationship with God, with Lot, but he, at the cost of personal wealth and, and finance. So what we see in Abram here is, what does it look like to be a pilgrim, to be a, to be a sojourner? Well, first, the pilgrim finds freedom in the promises of God. He's resting in the promises of God here when he makes this choice, right? In chapter 12, verse 7, God promised the land to Abram's seed. No matter what choice Lot makes, Abram knows that God is going to fulfill that promise. Whatever happens. And what a contrast from the previous chapter, right? He doesn't feel the need to manipulate things anymore. The sojourner is one who can say with David in Psalm 35, 15, my my times are in your hands. My times, whatever may come, riches or poverty, sickness or health, joy or suffering, my life is in your hands. The sojourner is able to say that because they know that this world isn't their home. They're not settling here. Eugene Peterson says, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. You see, this is no flimsy trust on Abram's part. He's By doing this, he's opening himself up 
to, to the desert. He's opening himself up to the wilderness, to potential famine and poverty that he'd already experienced. But you see, he's been, he's been freed. He's been liberated from holding tightly to what ultimately cannot be held on to. Let me give you another picture of this. Um, John Patton was born on May 24th, 1824 in Scotland. Small town, simple family, Um, but at 32 years old, Patton accepted the call to missions work in the South Pacific, which at that time, it's not like, okay, I'm going to go to Mexico for a few weeks and, and do that. This is a life commitment. You get on a ship, you are not coming back. So at 32 years old, he accepts this call to missions work. When he announced his plans to the church, it was only a few years earlier that two missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals on these islands. Now, a local man, an older man, on hearing his plans erupted in the congregation, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. Patton responded. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I love that. But the reality is that... that sort of faith is, is followed up by the rest of this story. Um, in 1858, uh, Patton married a young woman named Mary Robson, and the following month after their wedding, they set sail for, for these islands, a place riddled with tribal violence and dangerous diseases, and within a year, they'd built themselves at home, and, and Mary had given birth to a son. One year later, uh, to the month of their, their marriage uh, anniversary, Mary died of a, of a fever, and in three weeks, their infant son also died. John Patton buried them alone, and in his journal, he wrote, but for Jesus, I'd have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. Shortly before her death, Mary spoke these words. She She said, I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Patton stayed in Vanuatu until he was 81 years old. And today, some 90 years after his death, about 85% of Vanuatu identifies as Christian. But how? Like when I look at a story like that, or I look at Abram's life, what is it that that fueled these these people? Are these just extraordinary people, right? Are these like the superstars, and we can never aspire to that level of faith? They are extraordinary, yes, but they're also not, right? They were able to follow in the midst of trial and uncertainty because they had changed their foundation. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 8. It's kind of like our answer key to, to Abram's story. It says, By faith Abram obeyed, and when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, 
Uh, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, with heirs of, with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. How was he able to do it? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Catch that? He's looking forward to a city that has foundations. It's why he could follow, follow God into the desert. It's why he could let Lot have his way with the land. He had a promise, right? He looked forward to a rock-solid fulfillment that the Lord was building, not, not Abram. He's, ex- he's able to accept the tent and the, the life of sojourning and wandering because there's a city and a home waiting for him. He knows the garden has been unlocked once and for all. So he doesn't look at things like Lot does. He's been, he's been freed. He's been liberated from that crushing sense that he's, he's got to prove himself. He's got to live up to you know, this great call of God. He doesn't need 10 seconds to prove his existence, to justify his existence. And so the call of God is to change your foundations, to, to stop finding security in other things. And, and this is actually a lot more radical than I think we often think it is. I mean, you look at Abram, right? He gets the promise in, in chapter 12, and then he wanders off. He probably thought that he had changed his foundation. So how can you know? How can you know that you've changed your foundation? Well, I think you've got, you've got to look at where you run to when things aren't going well, right? The only way you can really know on, on a personal level that you've trusted in his grace is by how you handle your own personal shortcomings and failures, and when things just, it's not going the way that you had hoped. Right? If, you're, if your foundation is success and wealth, and you, you lose your job, that's going to crush you. Right? It won't just be a financial hardship. It'll be an identity blow. Right? A crush to your whole sense of worth and value. Or if, if your foundation, if the thing where you get your peace and security is your religion, your, your goodness... And, and you fall into some sort of pattern of, of sin, it's going to crush you. Not, not because you've offended a holy God, but because that thing that told you you were good enough is gone. But see, if, if your foundation is in Christ, if your foundation is, is in the promise of a future city, these, these things, these shortcomings, these failings will drive you to the Lord because he is, is the source of, of your identity. You see, the real test here is, can you handle your own failings? If you can't, you haven't really made the foundational shift that God wants you to make. You see, the call is to, to give up resting yourself in anything other than, than the, the utter grace of God. Because Abram had done that through his own failure in chapter 12 and repentance at the start of chapter 13, he's been liberated from his own ambition and lack of trust because he's trusting in something else now. His, his hope is in something firm and solid. And so look at what happens in verse 14. The Lord, after Lot had left, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, the commentaries say that the place where this promise was given 
um, there's an enormous panorama view of, of all the land. And God takes Abram up this mountain and essentially says, all that you can see is yours. I'm, I'm going to give you everything. Because you gave it all up, I'm going to give it all to you. Writing about this, Jared Wilson says, Abram meekly said, whatever you want, and God gave him the earth. It's like he gave up his seat on the bus and God gave him the keys. When we're going around stuffing ourselves with every pleasure and desire we can get our hands on, it's because ultimately we're looking for God. And so none of it satisfies. But when we finally turn our gaze to God and say, I only want you, we get him. Now, how can God do that? Like Abram is a failure. He failed in chapter 12. And spoiler alert, uh, he's going to fail again throughout the rest of Genesis. He's going to drop the ball again. So how can God know, like knowing what he does, how can he say these things to Abraham? Like all this land is yours, generation after generation. Like, doesn't he have some standards? How can he give it all to Abram? Well, it's because there's a third man that this passage points to. And you know his name. And centuries later, a, a real son of Abraham was born. And he was taken up to a high mountain, and and somebody said, all of this is yours. You can have all this if you'll just worship me. You see, like Abram, Jesus was taken to the top of a great mountain, and on top of that mountain, he was tempted by Satan. You see this in Matthew 4. They look over everything, and and Satan says to Jesus, you have all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and and worship me, which is kind of ridiculous, um, because they belong to Jesus, already. But you see what's actually happening here. The real temptation was, Jesus, you can have the promised land without the cross. You know, I can give you these things without suffering, without renunciation, without following God's plan. And Jesus said no, because he came to lose everything, his glory, his authority, his relationship with his father, everything. And so you see that reversal here. God takes Abram to the top of the mountain and says, these things are not yours by right. You don't deserve this. You're a failure, but I'm going to give it all to you. And he can do that because because of Jesus. When Satan took Jesus to the top of the mountain and offered him what was rightfully his, he refused them. He followed the path of suffering so that he could redeem us rather than possess the whole world without us. You see, Abram gave up his wealth so that he could keep his relationship with Lot, which is, is quite something, it's quite admirable, quite radical, and, and shows his faith. But, but Jesus gave up his ultimate wealth and ultimate glory so that, so that we could be in relationship with him. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, though he, though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty, might become rich. And that's the security that you and I have. That the the Prince of Heaven gave up his title, gave up his throne, stepped down into our world to give his life as a ransom. To take away our sin and our shame, to give us a name, to give us an identity, to give us an eternal assurance that we're loved and that we have worth and we have value and we look forward to his return. And that's the foundation that we have 
that we rest on in the in-between. And it changes everything for us. Would you pray with me this morning? So, Heavenly Father, we, we do lift up our eyes and we see that rather than facing a future of emptiness or meaninglessness or, or condemnation or wrath, we have been welcomed home. We remember that it's all of grace, that it's your kindness to us. So, God, we thank you for, for your spirit. We, we pray now even that you'd be working in our hearts and, and changing our hearts that you'd move among us, that you'd heal us, that you'd restore us, um, that you'd unite our hearts to, to fear your name. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that, that you love us, and you love us enough to come and, and die for us. So we pray this all in, in Jesus' name. Amen.